We are headed off into exile this week on The Backdrop. This is the Backdrop Podcast for Pomona Valley Church, and we're looking at the chapters that dive into Judah's trip into exile this week. That's chapters 24, 25, and 29. We skipped those earlier two chapters these past weeks because, as you'll see, thematically they mesh pretty much perfectly with chapter 29, which is what Meredith preached on this weekend, and so this gives us an opportunity to talk about all of these issues all at once. So that's going to be the focus this week. So let's start in chapter 24, where Jeremiah announces the coming exile and the ways that it would turn Judean society upside down in a typically Jeremiah sort of way, with a parable of sorts. Jeremiah sees a couple of baskets of figs, one ripe and delicious, one moldy. This is kind of a callback to earlier chapters when Jeremiah saw a pot of soup or a potter making pots, and God sent a message through those mundane sights. Well, in this one, Jeremiah is walking past the temple, Yahweh's palace, and he sees some fruit. And the setting is actually an important detail here because these aren't any old baskets of figs. These aren't waiting to be dried or sold in the marketplace. These are set outside the temple. Why? Because they are an offering to God. They might be the first fruits offering that is commanded in the Torah. We aren't completely sure. What we do know is that one person's offering is a basket of plump, juicy, ripe figs, and another person's offering, their offering to God, let me remind you, is a basket of moldy fruit. If that isn't a great image of how some people approach their worship of God, I don't know what is. Yep, I'm totally devoted to you, Yahweh. See, here I am bringing my offering. Just don't look too closely at what exactly is inside. And God's response to these two offerings is unsurprising. The good figs represent the good that God has in store for one group of Judeans. The bad figs represent the bad God has in store for another group of Judeans. What is surprising, though, is who makes up those two groups. This isn't a case of, like in Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats, those who have done good things get rewards, those who have done bad things are turned away empty. No, in this case, it's much more arbitrary seeming, I guess. Those who are sent off into exile get good things. Those who are not sent into exile and remain in the land get bad things. Why this is surprising is that you would expect the exact opposite. Shouldn't it be that the ones who are separated from the promised land, which God said would be a perpetual source of blessing, that those people are cursed? Shouldn't it be that those who get to remain in the land are blessed? But no, it's the opposite. And again, this is surprising in one sense, but in another, when you think about it, it's not that surprising at all. God seems to make a habit of choosing the younger brother, the oppressed, the woman, the hopeless, the outcast, over those with privilege. That's a theme that runs straight through scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Also, if what I said in the sermon last week is on the right track, and I hope it is, and part of what is going on in the judgment and exile is that God is overturning the whole unjust, idolatrous social structure so that a new, more godly social structure might have the chance to take root, then it's only those who get truly upended and sent off into exile who will have the chance to experience the good on the other side. Those who cling to the old structure, even if it looks like they are on the path to blessing, will actually find they are on a dead end. 
Jumping forward to chapter 25, Jeremiah gets a little more explicit and specific about the exile itself, saying that it will last for 70 years, a time frame that is repeated in chapter 29. Many scholars have debated exactly what this 70 years means and how to calculate it. Some have suggested that it's the time between when the temple is destroyed and the second temple is rebuilt, which was around 72 years. Some have said it's referring to when the first waves of the exiles start returning after the Persians overthrow the Babylonian Empire, which was around 67 years. Some have said that since there is no exactly 70-year time frame that we can find, Jeremiah must have been wrong in his prophecy. I think this sort of trying to match up an exact 70 years figure is, well, completely missing the point. It would be like someone hearing me say that we have a ton of tomatoes out there and then calling me a liar when they actually weighed them all out. 70 is a way of saying a long time. It's possible that it's using seven tens to communicate a long time that has come to fulfillment because the number seven was seen as a number of completion or perfection in those days. But it's primarily meant to communicate, among other things, you all who are going off into exile, you will all be dead by the time it's over. We're talking three generations here, not just a handful of years. It's a way of emphasizing Jeremiah's advice to the exiles in chapter 29 to settle down and build houses and families in Babylon. Seventy years is to represent a long time, but it's also a finite amount of time. It will end. Yes, exile will be bad, it will be hard, it will stretch on for a very long time, but it won't stretch on forever. God's faithfulness prevents that. Seventy years represents a long time, but a time that will end. And, by the way, the book of Daniel reinterprets this 70 years prophecy as 70 weeks of years, that is, 490 years, as a prediction of when the Messiah will come. The New Testament then sees this as a prediction of Jesus' birth. Now, this is most definitely not what it originally meant in Jeremiah. Just like Isaiah's prophecy about a young girl giving birth was not originally about Jesus. However, we see all the time God using words that had meant one thing originally and then reinterpreting them for a new situation. God continues to do that today. What Daniel is doing is not telling us what Jeremiah actually meant. It's telling us a new thing that God is doing with Jeremiah's old words on top of, in addition to, not a replacement. It's kind of like how a good poet hides little allusions and deeper meanings inside their words. It's not that the more obvious or immediate meanings are replaced by the elusive meaning. It's just that the elusive deepens and expands what might be going on. In any event, God's message is, you will be in exile for a long time, but I won't forget you. In the second half of chapter 25, God tells Jeremiah to break into the throne rooms of basically every major king in the known world and try to force them to drink as a symbol of God's wrath that is coming upon them. It's safe to say this was not something Jeremiah was literally supposed to do. That would be pretty much impossible. I don't think he would have gotten very far, for one thing. This is figurative language here, and one kind of fun, if not terribly profound, thing The final king who is to drink God's cup of wrath is called, in verse 26, the king of Shishak. Now, if you aren't familiar with the kingdom of Shishak, well, you aren't alone. To say what's going on here, we need a quick primer in ancient Hebrew linguistics. Woo! Try to contain your excitement. Pause the podcast if you need to. For the most part, Hebrew words were based on a three-consonant core. 
There were 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet, and each word used three of them as its core. Then onto that core, you could add prefixes, suffixes, and all that to build out variations on that word. And you could also change the vowels that connect those consonants to build out different meanings as well. So the word shalom, for example, its core is shin, lamed, mem, sh, l, m, basically. And in the actual text of the Bible in Hebrew, only the consonants are written. The vowels are left out, and scholars have to use the context to figure out which vowels would go where. Okay, so the word for Babylon would have been basically BBL, Bet Bet Lamed. Verse 26 says the king of Shishak, which would have a core of Shin, Shin, Cap. Bet is the second letter of the alphabet, Shin is the second from the last. Lamed is the 11th, Kap is the 11th from last. Shishak, in other words, is a coded word for Babylon where each of the consonants has been switched out for a corresponding consonant counted from the end of the alphabet. BBL becomes sh, sh, ka. Does this have deeper meaning? Not that anyone can tell, but it sure is interesting. <laughs> this is, by the way, called an atbash, and was apparently a common code in ancient Hebrew to switch out the letters. Again, like third letter of the alphabet becomes third to last, tenth becomes tenth to last, and so on. It's possible this was a way of hiding the target of this prediction of doom so that the reigning Babylonians wouldn't find out and get upset. But given all the other things Jeremiah says about Babylon in this book, it would seem like the cat was already probably out of the bag. So who knows? Jumping forward now to chapter 29, another just little interesting thing. The carrier of the letter that Jeremiah has sent to the exiles is Elasa, son of Shaphan. Shaphan, you may remember, we met before on the backdrop. He is one of the long line of priests who were apparently sympathetic to Josiah and Jeremiah. His other son, Ahikam, was the one who sided with Jeremiah and kept him safe in chapter 26. Jeremiah didn't have many friends in high places, but he sure did lean on the ones that he did have. If you read the first few verses on chapter 29 closely, you'll notice that in verse 1, the exiles are the entire people that Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. But then in verse 3, just two verses later, God refers to them as the entire exilic community that I sent into exile. So which is it? Did Nebuchadnezzar do it or did God? Well, as so often in the Bible, with things that seem contradictory on their face, it's both. God worked through the political actions of empires like Babylon. God used the ambitions and the cruelty of Nebuchadnezzar to do work that needed to be done. It's always interesting to me how unchoosy God is about the people God chooses to work through and with. Another of the interesting contradictions in this passage, or at least that relates to this passage, Jeremiah tells the people that it is God's desire that they would pray for the city of their captors. Plead on its behalf to Yahweh, Jeremiah says. This probably isn't that surprising to us, maybe. Jesus says to pray for our enemies. Paul tells us to pray for government authorities, for largely the same reasons as Jeremiah does here. If things go well for them, things will go well for you. But then in Psalm 137, we get one of the most uncomfortable passages in all of scripture. And it starts from the same place as Jeremiah 29, exile in Babylon. By Babylon's streams, there we sat. Oh, we wept when we recalled Zion. Psalm 137 starts. And then this short psalm ends... It ends with no further comment with this prayer for the people of Babylon. 
daughter of Babylon the Despoiler, happy is the one who repays you back in kind for what you did to us. Happy the one who seizes and smashes your infants against the rocks. Not sure that's quite what Jeremiah had in mind when he said to pray for the well-being of Babylon. I think we would do well to think about these things when we are confronted with competing themes in Scripture. God is love, but sometimes there's wrath. God desires for all to come to know God, and yet some are condemned. God's people are to pray for the well-being of Babylon, and yet we have in Scripture a prayer of graphically violent vengeance. The Bible is not a book of neat and tidy answers. It is a book that reflects the complexities of reality, the complexities of humanity, the complexities of God, the complexities of emotions. I hope that isn't an obstacle for us as we learn and study this book. I hope it drives us on, knowing that there are endless depths of insight and truth in the pages of this book, if we are to look for them. I think it's related to what Jeremiah says in chapter 29, verse 12. You will call me and come and plead with me and I'll listen to you. You'll seek after me and you'll find me if you seek help from me with your entire spirit. God's supreme desire is to be found by us, not to be hidden. But if we are truly to find God, it will be in complexity, not simplicity. God is not flat and one-dimensional. God is infinitely more complex and deep than we are as humans. And even that is more deep than I can take most of the time. God wants to be found fully, completely, but it requires us to seek with all of ourselves if we want to find the true complex God and not the flat, one-dimensional, lowercase God too many Christians actually worship. And one final topic from chapter 29. Jeremiah has advice for the people on how to live in exile. And in one light, it's not all that surprising advice. Live in exile the way you were supposed to have been living all along. Meredith made mention of this in her sermon this weekend, but it's worth considering it in a little more detail here, I think, because this is such an important insight into what Jeremiah's message to the exiles is. Jeremiah tells them to build gardens and harvest their fruit, to have families and to multiply, to pray to Yahweh on behalf of the communities in which they live, to seek God. These are all the things that the people of God were supposed to do in the promised land. This is, in fact, what the promised land was for, for them to have a place in which to do all these things. They aren't supposed to change now that they're in exile. They're supposed to live the exact way they had always been supposed to live. And it goes even further back when you look at it. In creation, what are Adam and Eve supposed to do? Tend a garden, harvest its fruit, be fruitful and multiply, be in close relationship with God. God is remarkably consistent on this. No matter when in history or where or what the circumstances are, God's people are faithful in the same ways. Represent the goodness and justice and faithfulness of God in the place where you are, wherever that might be. And let's be clear here. It's build an expanding community that represents the goodness and justice and faithfulness of God, not just do it as an individual. Or at least doing it as an individual might sometimes be required, but it is not the end goal. It brings to mind for me, actually, and I'm not sure this is intended necessarily by Jesus's words, but there are just so many connections between Jesus and Jeremiah that maybe I'm seeing things that aren't actually there now. But in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable about a man who entrusts different amount of gold to three servants, five talents of gold, two talents, and one talent. 
And then, based on the actions of those servants, the man gives them more or takes away what they have. And the refrain of the story is the master saying, you have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, enter into the joy of your master. Well, I think what Jeremiah is saying here is kind of analogous to what Jesus is saying. You people of Judah had access to the joy of your master, so to speak, and you squandered it. So now that has been taken away from you. But now, and this is actually a bit different than Jesus' story, I suppose, now you have a new chance. But I'm only giving you a little bit this time. Let's see if you can be faithful with a little bit in exile. And if you can, then you will enter back into the joy of God's blessing. Be faithful where I have put you, for now, and we'll see what happens next. And this is all related, actually, to the last topic that I want to spend some time on here, which isn't, strictly speaking, coming right out of Jeremiah 24, 25, or 29, but it is related to the sermon Meredith preached this weekend. And that's the question of what position followers of God, the people of God, the church, ought to have in society. Meredith was making the point that the Christian church has enjoyed a privileged position, one of power and influence for most of the past 1,700 years in the Western world, and has occupied that spot largely for the whole of the existence of the United States. But now we are being sidelined. In Europe, this is perhaps most stark. The church has gone from being the established state-sponsored religion in many countries to being virtually irrelevant to the vast majority of people's lives. America is a little behind in this marginalization process, but we seem to be on a similar, if slower, track. In other words, the church in the Western world has been sent into exile. We no longer hold the positions of privilege, power, and influence that we once did. And the reasons for this, I'd say, are largely the same as the reasons the people of God were sent into exile in Jeremiah's day. We have not used that position well. The societies the church helped to shape with the influence we enjoyed were not societies marked by the goodness, justice, and faithfulness of God. They were, and are, societies of oppression and injustice, of racism and sexism. They were, and are, societies in which things go well for the powerful, but not for the vulnerable. In opposition to what Jeremiah explicitly says ought to be true of societies shaped by God's people. And here's a controversial, maybe, opinion. I actually do think that God's dream for the world includes the people of God occupying places of influence and using that influence to shape the societies of which they are a part. Building cultures of justice and equity, goodness and faithfulness, sacrificial love and inclusion. God does not just dream of churches like that. God dreams of churches like that, that through showing what it means to follow Jesus, bring more and more people into that alternative way of living, into that alternative community. God dreams that through the influence of the church, we would bring more and more aspects of society and culture into alignment with the goodness and justice and faithfulness of God. To some, that description probably sounds like heaven, which I think it kind of is. To others, it might sound like a dystopian nightmare out of the handmaid's tale. It sounds like hell. And I suppose they're both right. When the people of God misuse their influence, it pushes society in a more hellish direction. When the church has aligned itself with the rich, with the powerful, 
with white interests or Western culture, it has become an enslaving, colonial, violent, excluding, monocultural, destructive, hellish force. But that's not what God's dream looks like at all. I believe God's dream would be to see the church, as in the people of God, not the hierarchical institution it sometimes gets confused with, to see the church in a place of cultural, societal, political influence, and to see it use that influence for the good of all. Let me suggest a couple characteristics of using influence for the good of all. And these are going to be broad brushstrokes, themes. Uh, The specifics would undoubtedly get far more complicated and would take a much longer discussion than we have time for here. But using this influence would look like, for one thing, being non-coercive. God is not coercive with us. And for us to think that good Christian influence is to create coercive laws that force those who do not trust God to act like they do against their will, I don't see that as a very God-like strategy. It seems quite the opposite of what God's character looks like in Scripture. I think followers of Jesus using their influence well would look far more like persuasion than coercion. Second, it would be diverse and multicultural. I'm sure if some heard what I'm arguing for here, they would be adamantly opposed to it, in part because they equate Christianity and Christianity having an influence on culture with white Western colonial oppression. This is due to the failing of the church to actually be the church for these past 2,000 years. In every culture, the church has the temptation to be absorbed into and co-opted by the dominant culture. And far too often, the church has allowed itself to be abused in that way. When the church aligns itself with and serves a racist, oppressive culture, it has, to put things in terms Jeremiah would understand, it stopped trusting Yahweh and started trusting idols. A new book by the CEO of the Public Religion Research Institute called White Too Long includes a study which found that among Americans, white Protestants were more likely to hold racist attitudes than any other religious group. And that, in fact, the more often white Protestants attended church, the more racist their attitudes were likely to be. And this was most true of evangelical churches. That is a damning statistic that exposes how far the professed people of God have strayed from where God would want them. The true church, as we can see in the pages of scripture clearly, would build a society where the creativity and diversity of the beauty of different cultures would be equally valued for what it contributes to the dream of God for a world filled with goodness and justice and faithfulness. I think a lack of imagination on the part of the Western world has meant that we haven't seen the beauty in other cultures. Instead, we equated their cultural differences with being bad or less than, And that fatal mistake is rightfully being rejected by many people today. They think they are rejecting Christianity. I would disagree. As the church, we should work to reclaim cultural diversity as an essential of God's people, rather than mm, a nice add-on when we want to sound woke. So, non-coercive, multicultural, and third, a culture shaped by Christianity would be generous and sacrificial. A culture shaped by the people of God would be one in which people spent less and less time trying to defend their own turf, protect their own interests, and win a zero-sum game. Instead, they would spend more and more time sacrificially looking out for the good of others. It would be a society where everyone from individuals to corporations to government would rather be too generous than too efficient. 
You know, it was only part of the way through this list that I began to realize that what I was doing was naming the values of Pomona Valley Church. Authenticity, diversity, sacrifice. So why not continue? It would be a culture that values people and relational connection. It'd be a culture that's open to the movements of God in its midst. That seems appropriate, doesn't it? We want to be a church, again, meaning a group of people following Jesus, not an institution, that uses its influence to bring the goodness and justice and faithfulness of God into our sphere, our corner of the culture, to be an outpost, a colony, as Paul would put it in the New Testament, but not in the oppressive sense of the word that it has taken on in the years since Paul wrote to the Philippians. We want as a church to be a colony that brings a taste of God's dream to a world desperate for that dream to come true. That's who we are as Pomona Valley Church, whether in exile or in power. And we have plenty of work to do. That's it for the backdrop this week. A bit longer than average, I know, but hopefully it was worth it. Hope to see you this Sunday on Zoom, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Find a link to that as well as some discussion or reflection questions to pair with this episode on our website, pomonavalleychurch.org. Until then, have a great week. Bye. Bye.